Bem-vindos, uh, o meu nome é Miguel Rego e estou aqui da parte da Fantasy People para vos dar as boas-vindas ao podcast com o tema Dinâmicas de Investimento em Obrigações de Mercados Emergentes. Mário Carvalho Fernandes, o CIO do Banco Carregosa, estará à conversa com Alejandro Arevalo, responsável de dívida de mercados emergentes na Jupiter Asset Management. A conversa será em inglês e certamente será muito interessante. And now uh, we'll hear from Mario and Alejandro. Mario, please uh, go on. Uh, obrigado, Miguel. Uh, thank you, uh, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be here with you and have the opportunity to exchange some ideas and views about uh, these very broad uh, asset classes that is emerging market uh, debt. Absolutely. Uh, My pleasure to be here as well, Mario. Perfect. Um, from, from my side, I, I am more a macro asset allocator, uh, so I'm not an expert on emerging market debt as, as you are. Uh, so uh, it's always uh, very good for me to have some opportunities to have uh, some exchange of ideas and get, get a, a deeper knowledge on these uh, asset classes. Uh, and I would like to start uh, asking you, Uh, about this moment, uh, why we should uh, uh, look to emerging markets at this uh, present conjecture, as you know, um, it's a very special one. And uh, we had uh, uh, OCD uh, forecasts recently, uh, yeah. um, giving us an outlook for the world economy, and they reiterate their view on the two-speed economies. Uh, to speed recovery in terms of global economy, putting emerging markets a little bit slower in terms of recovery due to yeah. the slower vaccination rate that these countries have been facing due to the COVID situation. Uh, in this context, uh, why should we care about emerging markets debt in this moment? Uh, absolutely. Um, it's very interesting that you mentioned recovery because absolutely at the moment, what we're seeing is uh, two different recoveries from developed markets and emerging markets. And the expectation, even not too long ago, a month ago, is that there will continue to be an outperformance from developed markets. But what has been very interesting when you start looking at the forecast for GDP across many emerging market economies, we're starting to see a pickup much higher than was anticipated. You know, we can say that when you look at the economy in South Africa, Brazil, even Mexico, you have now economies that are steaming ahead. So when we think about the global context, you know, for when, when people ask me why emerging markets, I think to me is not only the benefits of going back to what is growth, you know, we are in an environment where you have more global trade, where commodities, even though we have seen them backtrack over the last week, which we can discuss that in more detail, um, it's also still at very comfortable levels. So to me, the emerging market long-term story continues to be intact. I think the other thing that is interesting for external investors or fund selectors is that emerging markets tend to be a very good instrument for diversification. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we can make as an investor is to think that or have a blanket approach or to think that all emerging market economies are in the same cycle. And they're not. You know, some people just throw them in the same boat. You know, it's pretty obvious that in this global environment, you're going to have winners and losers. Of course, the winners could be very easy. You know, those commodity exporters, but those commodity importers will suffer. You know, the likes of India and Turkey, which you have to import some type of oil. And that, of course, will have an impact 
in their fiscal deficits. But I do think that as a dedicated emerging market investors, when I look at my asset class, I do have more than 70 countries in which I can invest. And we can break it down in many ways, sovereign, corporates, hard currency, local currency. There are many different ways which you can invest. And you can build a very, in my view, you know, very well diversified, diversified portfolios to, re- to reflect that macro view. And the last point is about yield. We, we still are in an environment that investors are struggling to find yield. And what we have found in emerging markets, in my experience, is that if a company, for example, which we also focus in corporates, if a company is labeled emerging markets, it's penalized automatically. And sometimes when you do a very simple, simple exercise of comparing you know, leverage between emerging markets and developed markets, you tend to have sometimes better fundamentals in emerging markets. But because it's emerging, it, has, it tends to be penalized. So I do think that there's still very attractive you know, yield opportunities out there that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, be, have to go down all the way in the cluttered rudder to get it out. Yeah, in fact, it, it touches a lot of different uh, points that are very important in, the, in these uh, asset classes. Uh, in fact, uh, one of them is that it's really a, a very broad uh, asset classes, and it is uh, very iterations uh, uh, because, uh, in fact, uh, different economies uh, are in different uh, cycles. And uh, it's very different, uh, an economy like China, it's very different from economies from LATAM or uh, even in Asia, there are a lot of different uh, economies like India and China and Turkey, they are completely (laughs) different one from each other. So, uh, uh, and you also uh, talk a little bit about the the foreign exchange risks regarding uh, art currency and local currency. and the, the hunt for yield. So these are three themes that I think we can go a little bit deeper. Uh, in first place, regarding these different blocks and economies, uh, at this moment, which ones are the, the ones you like most and why? And where, where do you think risks are higher than opportunities? So best, okay. best geographies and worst geographies in your opinion. Absolutely. So the way that we tend to divide emerging markets in three big regions, in Latin America, in CEMEA, which is in Central Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa, and Asia. These are the big blocks you can think about emerging markets. Where are we positioning the fund at the moment? Or where, which stories do we like? Again, going back to more specific stories, but you can say that we very much like, you know, some countries in Africa. You know, Africa, you could say that they were unloved last year. Um, when you start at the peak of the coronavirus, because there were question marks about, of course, commodity prices, about sustainability of debt. And what we have seen is that in this environment and with access to international markets, many of these economies have been improving. And also they, in, the question that we always ask ourselves, you know, are you getting paid for the risk? And we believe that they are, we are, you know, we are very much like countries like, for example, Egypt. You know, Egypt is something that we, will, we believe will continue to benefit not only from the growing economy, but also from, we could say, the, the vaccine play, right? Once you have more tourism, it's something that will benefit um, this country in particular. I think the Middle East is something fairly simple, you know, because it's, it's everything about oil. 
you know, while you know, many of these countries at current levels are still below what, they, what will balance their fiscal, I do think that we have started to see some reforms and also the expectation that oil could be stable or even higher. And that's positive for them. In Latin America, you know, I think that it's very interesting because Latin America over the last month, two months, has been involving more geopolitical risk. What, what, in more geopolitics, sorry about that, in more geopolitical risk, you know, countries like uh, Ecuador, sorry, so countries like Colombia, Peru, countries like Chile, but we still like very much Brazil, Mexico, again, going back to that growth and revision of, 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 um, of, the, of, what is, of, of growth in the, in the economy, especially countries like Mexico that are so tied to the hip with the U.S. Some countries, I mean, another region where, oh, sorry, just that we have actually started to pull back and reallocate to the rest is Asia. I mean, for us, Asia, and this one to the point about China, I do think that China at this moment in time is starting to go back, worry about leverage. And that's something that we want to position the funds as an underweight because we see more opportunities elsewhere. Okay, perfect. Uh, and um, regarding the, the, the forex exchange uh, uh, risk uh, is one very important risk when someone... Uh, uh, thinks about investing in emerging market uh, debt. Um, after uh, this COVID crisis, with governments needing to uh, to 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 have a higher uh, uh, expenses on their fiscal accounts, um, there are some countries uh, that are less balanced. Uh, how do you think uh, these risks will evolve? in uh, this uh, aftermath of uh, COVID-19. Uh, you see this as a problem. Do you prefer to have exposure to these uh, emerging market debts through hard currency or you see opportunities in local currencies uh, also? Yeah, um, for us, you know, when we break it down into local currency and hard currency, we do have a bias toward hard currency. Uh, for us, local currency, what we, what we have seen in this market is over the last three years, you know, many central banks have aggressively cut rates. And the risk, reward, the risk reward for us was not there. And most of the return was created by the FX. But what many of these central banks have done, which in a way I think shows some maturity, is that they have left you know, mark, the, the market pricing to dictate where the FX is. And as we know, that can also add volatility. And, on, and if you don't have, you know, the higher yields that you used to have, you know, it could be a losing situation for investors. So for us, you no, know, we have reduced our local currency exposure in the funds. So in some cases, we don't have any local currency exposure to focus more, to focus more in hard currency. The reason that we have done that, I mean, and I'm always clear with our investors, the fact that we have dollars doesn't mean that we don't have a local currency FX risk. We do. But there are also ways that we can hedge that. You know, when I think, for example, in our corporate portfolio, you know, we tend to focus very much on exporters. You know, they generate dollars. We focus very much in utilities that are dollar linked. You know, we even focus in telecommunication because in case there is an inflation pickup, 
they tend to be very quick to be able to pass through that inflation to the end consumer. Because when we look at most, uh, many of these emerging market economies, what is driving growth is consumption. So they're still willing to pay that higher prices. So while we prefer hard currency, there are always ways in our portfolio where we try to hedge this risk out. Okay, and uh, regarding the, the last uh, week events where uh, OMC uh, meeting uh, changes a little bit the, the, the view on the, the future path of uh, interest rate uh, adjustments in the US, and that has been impacting uh, US dollar commodity prices and uh, also uh, the, the cross uh, among uh, emerging market uh, currencies. Uh, did this event change your views on these asset classes or, or do you think that uh, we will keep in an environment uh, uh, where investors will still looking for yields wherever it is? It's, it's very interesting that you know, we have now a Federal Reserve that has moved to a different type of policy, right? Where, we, where they're more fixed or they have focused very much in average inflation. And you could say that they have even more uh, a, a closer eye of what's going on employment. I think one of the big surprises ha just happened over the last week, you know, where you know, markets were taken by surprise by what they're calling a more hawkish Fed where now they're expecting for two rate hikes in 2023. There was not much change in inflation, just the pace of those rate hikes. But I really like something that Mr. Powell said, you know, the plot dot doesn't dictate policy. And what has been, you know, interesting to see is that while you would expect U.S. Treasuries to rally on the back of this hawkish Fed, they have, sorry, to sell off, they have actually rallied. And I think there's a lot of question marks. What is driving this? You know, I, I have I have read that. Well, this shows that the Fed is not so behind the curve that they will be able to anchor inflation. While other stories are saying, well, this shows a policy mistake, and there uh, there's a flight to safety. For us at this moment in time, you know, we still we haven't changed our core strategy. We're very much data dependent. I want to see how I mean how the next couple of months, how the data comes, how the next couple of months to be able to see if we want to change anything, the structure or the portfolios. By structure, what, what do I mean? Well, we continue to prefer very much high yield. I think again, going back to this global trade. To this, to this positive environment, we do believe that having high yield will is beneficial. And even if you think that rates will remain at these levels, that's good for emerging market because these companies, these sovereigns will continue to have access to cheap financing. So that's positive. And the other thing that we have remained the same, we haven't any change, is our duration. Now, we tend to have our, our, our duration still, still short against the funds that we have benchmarked because, again, we want to see how, how the data comes and how this, this new environment will play out. So while we will give up some of the price appreciation of the rally in investment grade long end, our high carry is helping us, is helping us to compensate for that. So it's, it's still for us a, a wait and see until we get more, more data from, from the U.S. 
in fact, it was uh, very curious to see the, the reaction of the markets to these last uh, FMOC uh, rate, uh, not decision, but uh, uh, the dot plots that uh, changes the, the view on the market. And uh, the reaction on treasury uh, rates was very curious. Uh, I, I do think that um, the markets were probably too much biased to the, the, the idea that the, the Fed would not be able to uh, increase rates so soon. And this step forward uh, give some space to correct uh, some uh, uh, probably overreaction that was in the market, some of extended uh, fluctuations in, in uh, um, currencies and uh, commodities that were probably to, to, to stretch to, to, to uh, be uh, um, in, 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 in synchronization with the reality. Uh, you already mentioned the, uh, that you are less positive on, on China uh, because of the, the high uh, levels that the corporates, uh, uh, Chinese corporates uh, have. Um, that is a, a, there is some concern about this issue uh, always uh, latent in the, in the markets. Um, do you think uh, this is... Um, a problem that can have some spillover effects to the other uh, emerging market uh, debt. If there is some uh, problem there, do you think there is a problem or is not a problem? It's just uh, something that uh, uh, will correct. Uh, uh, just leave it alone. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's very interesting because you know. Um, for us, you know, at the peak of the COVID and, and late, and even um, in the second half of last year, uh, our 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 fund positioning was long China, and the reason for that you could say was a first one in, first one out in terms of the coronavirus, and also they were very proactive. Not only China, I would say Asia in general, they were very proactive in tackling the virus and even closing cities or the country itself, and. On top of that, you were able to have, you had a government was, that was very supportive to get the economy going. And it actually worked. And we, ha- and we saw, you know, a Chinese economy growing so significantly last year, which surprised the market. What has happened and why we have decided to cut that overweight in China? Well, what has become pretty obvious to us that they are now, again, focusing on concerns about leverage about you know the amount of liquidity they, they injected into the system and they're trying to rein that back and that of course you know you could always have some um, volatility you know they're also trying to move away from a system that you know there are no defaults that the government will always be able to come and support to something that is more market oriented and i would say a very clear example that has created volatility again one of those risks that we see is that you know, it has been in the news an asset management company called Huarong, which is government-owned. And the market was always expecting for the government to step in because this company had some issues. I mean, ex- extreme leverage. You could say that in, in a way was a black box. And since March, they haven't been able to come out with the financial statements. And given this uncertainty, everything that is SOE or, gov- or government-owned has been reprised because if they don't stand behind a company like this, 
the question mark will be who is next. And this will mean more expensive funding for these issuers at the international level. So to me, you know, we, I want, we want to see if their action will come through with this promise that market conditions have to dictate if a company survives or not. The other thing that it has kept us um, as well a little bit concerned is that, you know, the real estate sector is, I mean, it's a big driver of growth, you know, close to 20% when you, put, when, you, when you add all the indirect sectors. And also there's one big elephant in the room called Evergrande that has more than 100 billion outstanding and there has been some liquidity concerns. So for us, when you have question marks about the government supporting the SOEs, you have a tightening of liquidity, a big elephant in the real estate sector, and tight valuations given how strong local demand is in Asia, for us is a good time to take a step back and just see how this plays out. And also, like I said, you know, the, the beauty about emerging markets is a quite a diverse universe, and we're able to see opportunities elsewhere in the asset class. Okay, one also one question also uh, regarding China. Uh, <clears throat> when people refers to the uh, emerging market debt issued in dollars in countries uh, that has a different uh, currency, uh, most of this uh, um, debt is issued exactly by real estate uh, companies in in China. Do you see that can be a problem if uh, U.S. dollar starts now uh, to to appreciate against uh, renminbi? It's not a, a, a trend that has been in the short term, but it can uh, uh, be turning around now. Absolutely, I think. I think if we, I think the risk will be if we see a significant appreciation of the dollar against emerging market effects, because it will not give enough time for management and governments to be able to adjust to this new reality. When it comes to real estate. Something that has been very interesting to see is that given that international markets are quite open, is that many of these companies, real estate companies, have been able to take advantage of that excess liquidity to be able to issue new debt, call or tender all debt, which was at much higher coupons, and able to extend duration. So while there is still a significant maturity wall over the next one to two years, I would say that the risk of a sector meltdown or default has been mitigated by, by many of these companies to be able to extend that duration. You also have to take into account that the government has issued the three, the three red lines that all these companies need to comply in the next years. And of course, this one is about leverage. So many of these people and also the pace of which they're buying land banks. So many of these companies, you know, they're, 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 they, they know they need to comply and also have reined back on that aggressive expansion, which I think is good. You know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying that there will be no defaults. I do think that there will be defaults. But in that international arena, you tend to have the biggest players. And while there will be some defaults, I don't think that you'll ex you will see um, a, a significant uh, spread widening because most of them tend to be very much, um, people know exactly how these companies stand. So it's something that, of course, is a big issue. It's a big part of the high yield e e universe in Asia. And um, 
you know, it's about diversification and differentiation. Okay, perfect. Uh, we, I have many more questions about this, this interesting uh, team, uh, but we, we are approaching uh, the end of this, this, this uh, conversation. Uh, so I, I would like to, to, to uh, also have some, some light uh, regarding your, uh, uh, your style, uh, managing uh, your strategies. Uh, this emerging market debt is uh, an asset class uh, with a lot of volatility, uh, especially um, it tends to have very high volatility when uh, portfolio managers, uh, uh, asset allocators like me, uh, tend to, to prefer to have lower asset volatilities. So in risk of, in risk of moments, uh, this class tends to, to prefer uh, poorly. Um, how do you manage all this uh, volatility and these uh, strong drawdowns that uh, the asset class uh, has historically shown uh, in the critical moments? I think that the first thing to have it right is that you need to have a very robust investment process. And like you correctly said, you know, you can see, you can see volatility in the asset class. But I think you need to differentiate what is triggering this volatility. Is it driven by fundamentals or is it driven by market participants? You know, unfortunately, in our asset class, we tend to get many, many tourist money, many crossover money that unfortunately they're looking at a yield, but not really understand the risk behind that yield. And when you have a negative headline, they tend to you know, sell first and ask questions later. And I think that's why having a strong investment process makes a difference because we're able to go and buy those names that have been under pressure because the fundamentals are strong. So I think that's very important to understand. The other one, we are big believers in diversification. You know, when you have such a wide universe, how many countries, how many corporates, you know, I cannot believe that there are at least 80 to 100 companies or sovereigns that make sense. So we are big believers on diversification because we know we won't be 100% right. And if we have the core wrong, we are diversified enough to be able to, be able to recover that, that, that drawdown. How do we think about drawdown? I think that for us is our main focus. It's risk-adjusted return. It's how we, we manage that. And it's through diversification, investment, a, a robust inv investment process. But also we tend to think sometimes outside the box. And, you know, when we have short-term volatility in our market, you know, we tend to use sometimes CDS, we buy protection. You know, instead of going and sell a position where the bid-ask may kill you and it's something that we expect only to be short-term, we also use some CDS and that will limit the volatility in the fund. And we are also cash. I mean, we also believe in cash. You know, people tend to say, well, cash don't give you any return, but it also doesn't, this doesn't make you losses. And having that cash cushion does help us manage the risk in the portfolio. Okay, uh, sounds good. Um, in fact, uh, cash uh, uh, now is uh, probably the, the unique asset class that can protect you from uh, downside risks when the, <laughs> we have some, some concerns regarding also duration, uh, duration risk on our portfolios. Um, I think we are uh, approaching uh, uh, quickly the, the end of, of this uh, uh, talk. Uh, I would like to uh, thank you, Alexandro, for uh, your uh, 
lucid view on, on, on these uh, very broad uh, asset classes, as, as we, we said. It's a very wide asset classes and give us the opportunity to, to have the, the benefit of this free lunch that is diversification. In fact, there are always opportunities. Uh, we need to have a process that uh, is able to, to find these opportunities, whatever they are in the emerging markets. Uh, there is always a country that is in a different uh, cycle uh, than the others. And uh, the, the recent uh, volatility and the structural changes that are occurring in, in the world will make winners and losers uh, all over the places. And uh, in these uh, asset classes, it will not be different. Uh, I wish you a, a lot of success uh, finding uh, these uh, opportunities and uh, it was very uh, insightful to, to have uh, your views, uh, especially on the China debt and your more positive views uh, in, the, uh, uh, in some Latin, Latin, America, uh, Latin American countries and Mexico. Uh, thank you for... Uh, all these insightfuls and I hope we can uh, talk uh, something uh, some sometime soon absolutely thank you very much Mario uh, it was a pleasure chatting to you and I hope we keep this conversation going thank you very much okay and thank you to friends people to join us here uh, to, to have this opportunity I hope uh, everyone uh, enjoyed this this uh, talk I think we covered uh, many of the issues that are currently concerning the investors in this uh, asset class.